Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep. Before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So far we read God's holy word. The basis of that and many other passages of God's word is the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 15. Lord's Day 15. There in question 37, the Catechism asks, what? dost thou understand by the words he suffered from the Apostles Creed of course he suffered and the answer that he all the time that he lived on earth but especially at the end of his life 
sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so, by his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation, and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay on me. For the death of the cross was accursed of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the catechism here is explaining the saving work of Jesus Christ. And as you know, there are two parts to that saving work of Jesus Christ. There is His humiliation and His exaltation. And the Catechism is explaining His humiliation, the five steps of Christ's humiliation. We learn these in Catechism. His lowly birth, His suffering, which includes the cross, His death, His burial, and then the lowest of Jesus' humiliation, His descent into hell. The Catechism has explained the first step of that humiliation in Lord's Day 14, explaining the incarnation, God coming in the flesh. Now in this Lord's Day, we turn to the suffering of Jesus Christ, which includes His crucifixion. And that raises the question, what exactly is the significance of the death of Jesus Christ? What exactly did He accomplish? Why did God require that Jesus suffer and die? There are many theories rooted in unbelief that seek to explain why this man, Jesus, died. There are those who say, well, he was a man who was dying as a martyr for his cause. Many times you look through history and you see people who are willing to die for their cause. That's what Jesus was doing. Or others would say, he was a man of principle. And he refused to give up on his principles. He was willing to die even rather than to contradict his principles. And there are others who would say, well, he, he had kind of a Messiah complex. People thought maybe he was the Messiah, so he began to think that about himself too. And maybe now by his, his generosity, his love and kindness, he inspires other people to be loving and kind as well. Again, those are answers rooted in unbelief. But we still need to say 
explain what, what is so significant about Jesus' suffering and death. Why is it different, from, for example, from some other martyr who died for the cause of Jesus Christ? Many martyrs went to death singing psalms. Jesus told His disciples if they were persecuted for righteousness' sake, they were to rejoice and be exceeding glad. And yet when we look at Jesus approaching death, Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And that drops of blood came out of him like huge drops of sweat. Did Jesus fail to do what he told his disciples to do? To rejoice? To be exceeding glad? To ask that question, of course, is to be foolish. But I ask the question because I want us to face the question, how was his suffering and death different from any other martyr, any other death that anyone ever experienced? And the answer is, he died an atoning death. An atoning death. The catechism teaches us he suffered the wrath of God all through his life, but especially on the cross at the end of his life. His death was an atonement. He died not for himself. He died for others. He died for sins. He died for the sins of his people. So those to whom he knew and loved, he would die for them. That makes Jesus' death absolutely unique from anybody else's death ever. So let's examine this instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism under the theme, Jesus' atoning suffering. Jesus' atoning suffering. You'll notice in the first place that it was satisfactional suffering. Secondly, that it was substitutionary suffering. Thirdly, that it was specific, that is, for specific people. I want to tell you this too, that whenever somebody asks you about the death of Jesus Christ, if you want to give a reformed answer, if you want to gather together the things that the Bible teaches, those are the three things, those three points are the things you must have in your answer. That it was a satisfaction, it was a substitution, and it was for specific people. If you can remember that, you'll give a biblical answer that will explain Jesus' death. First of all, then, Jesus' suffering was a satisfaction. That is to say, it was a payment. Now, the Catechism clues us into that with two words that indicate the death of Jesus was a payment. First of all, it says it's a propitiatory sacrifice. And secondly, that He redeemed. Those two words indicate that the death of Jesus was a satisfaction, a payment for something. Now, to understand that, 
you need to look at two attributes of God that people sometimes put at odds in, in each other, but they're not at odds at all. Two attributes of God that are perfectly in harmony with Him. Number one, love. Number two, righteousness. First of all, God is love. That's an attribute of God. He is love. And the love of God means that He delights in someone and He wants to draw that person close to Him and enjoy fellowship. He wants that person to be blessed by fellowship with Him. God is love. And God, in love, sent sent His Son Jesus. That He sent His Son Jesus in love is evident from First of all, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 1 John 4, 10 says this, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, notice, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in love, God sent His Son. That Jesus gave Himself in love is evident from many places as well. Ephesians 5, 2 says it, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sweet a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. So God sent his son in love. Jesus gave himself in love. The death of Jesus is characterized by love. The love of God is eternal. Do you understand then? That God sent Jesus Christ not so that He could love His people. Not so that He, the result of the cross was that He loved His people. But He sent His Son because He loved His people. So that first of all, God is love. In love, He sent His Son. The other attribute is God's perfect righteousness. Righteousness is an attribute of God, and in that attribute of God, God is always in perfect harmony with Himself. Whatever He says, whatever He thinks, whatever He does, is always in perfect harmony with His own being. His being which is perfect, His being which is holy. Everything God says and does is in perfect harmony with Himself. That's His righteousness. The Bible makes it plain that God is righteous in everything that He does. He judges righteously. He does not condemn the righteous. He does not justify the ungodly. He he recognizes the just cause of those who are poor and downtrodden and He helps and saves them. And in His righteousness, He sent Jesus to be a propitiatory sacrifice in His righteousness so that He could forgive sin in love and still uphold His perfect righteousness. He determined to forgive sins in love and yet at the same time uphold His perfect justice. Romans chapter 3 says that very thing. Romans 3, beginning at verse 25, says this, Whom, this is Jesus now, whom God hath set forth 
to be a propitiation, that same word over and over, we're going to come across it, a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness, God's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So in other words, all through the Old Testament, God was forgiving His people their sins. Adam, Eve, Noah, all the saints in the Old Testament. He was forgiving them. On what basis could He forgive them? On the basis that someday those sins would be paid for. A propitiatory sacrifice would be offered for those sins. And so now when Jesus comes, God says, I am now declaring to the world my righteousness. I forgave those sins in perfect righteousness. That's necessary. Love, righteousness, perfectly meet together in the cross. But why is that so important? Why cannot, since he loves his people, why cannot he simply say, I love you and I'm going to forgive you? We do that all the time in our homes. I love you. I'm going to forgive you. Why can't God do that? Well, to see why God cannot do that, then let's notice some things about God. Remember, first of all, that God willed everything for His own glory. His creation is a work for His glory. His salvation is a work for His glory. So is sin. Sin works into God's perfect plan for His glory because that would bring the coming of Jesus Christ. That would bring the cross. That would bring the atoning death. And all those things work for God's glory. Bringing out the majesty of our God, His wide and broad attributes so that we can all see what a glorious God He is. So keep that in mind. All these things are part of God's plan for His glory. Secondly, keep in mind, God hates sin. He absolutely hates sin. With an eternal, infinite hatred against all that is vile, all that is full of iniquity, He hates it far more than we realize. Third, Remember that God's law, which we read this morning, is not simply ten arbitrary rules that God made up for us to follow, but the law of God is the revelation of Himself, of His perfections, of His righteousness. That's what the law reveals. So when you violate one of those commandments, it's not something small. You go into a court of law sometimes and a judge might say, well, this law, this law is kind of outdated. And, and I can understand why you did this, so I'm, I'm going to minimize the, the penalty here because it, it really doesn't apply very well in this situation. That's never true of God. It's steadfast. It remains because it is the revelation of God's own righteousness. A violation of the law is an offense against God's own righteousness. Now to expand on that a bit, think of what sin is then. 
The Bible describes sin as foolishness, as guilt, as pollution, impurity, as death. But it also says it's an offense against God. Every single sin is an offense against God. God cannot simply say, I'll just forget it. I'll just forgive it. He cannot. He would deny himself if he would do that. So the death of Jesus Christ would cover sin in such a way that it would maintain the honor and the glory and the majesty of our God. The creature has affronted the Creator. Every sin, every sin is an affront against our God, the Creator. Whether it is simply the failure to do something, or an active violation of the law, whether it is doing something inwardly, rather outwardly that's legitimate, but inwardly the motives are wrong, or whether it is an evil word spoken against the neighbor. All those things are a sin against God. God sent Christ, therefore, to accomplish the satisfaction of God's righteousness, maintaining His honor as the Creator in the face of all these horrible offenses against Him by His people. Jesus' suffering, therefore, was exactly that. It was a payment for sin. A payment. A violation of the law makes one guilty, but it also makes a person a debtor. Because we are required to live according to the law perfectly, and every time we do not, we owe God a debt. Our sins are guilt, and they are a debt. The righteous God judges righteously. He cannot overlook sin. Guilt must be punished, and eternal death in hell is the punishment. Eternal death in hell is the punishment for any sin because it's a sin against God Himself. Jesus sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against sin. That's the Catechism's instruction drawing from the Scripture. He sustained in body, His physical body, and in His soul, He sustained the punishment that was determined for, for sin. So every single lie that was ever told by a believer deserves a certain punishment. Every theft, every adultery, every idolatry, every violation of the Lord's day, every one of those sins deserves a certain punishment. Jesus would take upon Himself the punishment for every one of those sins. That's His suffering. That's why Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, 
if there is some other way to redeem these people than to bear that infinite wrath, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's why blood was being squeezed out of his body like drops of sweat. The terrible suffering, the agony, no one has ever come close to it in their life, in their suffering. No one. The Catechism says Jesus bore that wrath of God all his life long. And that's difficult to understand. How did Jesus as a baby bear the wrath of God? I can't explain that totally, but I can say this. When Jesus came into the world, even though He came as a baby, He came as the mediator of the covenant. He came as prophet, priest, and king. He came to do a work that God gave him to do, to redeem his people. He knew that already at age 12, when he said to his parents, Wish ye not, do you not know, that I must be about my father's business? That's why I'm here, to do that work. And the work that God gave him to do was the salvation of God's own people. And that demanded bearing the wrath of God in body and soul. So at the same time that God announced in Jesus' ministry, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And He was. At that same moment, Jesus was bearing the wrath of God against our sins. That's a satisfaction. A payment for sin. But you understand then he didn't do it for himself. He did it for someone else. And that's why we say the suffering of Jesus was not only a satisfaction, a payment, but it was a substitutionary death. He was a substitute. We all know what that means. Go to a basketball game and you have five players out on the floor and the, and the coach sends in a substitute. One person goes in, one goes out. A substitute. Now you're going to play in that place. You're going to take his place. What Jesus did in his life as a mediator, he did in the place of of others. He took the guilt, he took the debt, he took the offenses of others upon him. The chapter that we read in Isaiah is at great pains to demonstrate that. Let me read from Isaiah 53. Verse 4, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was wounded for 
our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Verse 6. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8 at the end. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Verse 11 at the end. He shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. He bear the sin of many. All that over and over and over. Why was Jesus suffering? That's what Isaiah 53 is all about, the suffering of Jesus. Why was he suffering? For other people. He was a substitute. Now, in order for Jesus to bear the iniquity of his people and to do that in a legitimate way, because you can't just go into a court of law and say, uh, here, I'll, I'll take his punishment. The judge would say, you can't, you can't take the punishment of somebody else. What, what are you thinking? But for Jesus to do that legitimately, he had to be one with his people. So God eternally chose his people in Jesus Christ. They are one. The church is, rather, Christ is the head, the legal head of his church. Adam was the legal representative of the race. So when Adam fell, all fell in Adam. Christ is the legal representative of his people, the chosen of God. Therefore, their guilt could legally be his guilt imputed to him. But for Jesus to bear the guilt of other people, he had to be himself perfectly innocent. He had his own guilt. He couldn't take on the guilt of someone else. So he had to be absolutely, perfectly innocent and righteous. That's part of the point of question and answer 38. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Because the biblical accounts of the trial of Jesus bring out this for sure. Jesus was innocent. He had never broken a single commandment. Not of men, not of God. He went before Pilate and Pilate examined him and three different times Pilate came out and said to the people, I find no fault in him. He's not broken any law. And the Sanhedrin had the same problem. In order to try to condemn Jesus, they, they had to suborn evil men, false witnesses, to come and bear witness against Jesus. And even their testimony couldn't agree. They, they couldn't find witnesses to condemn him. And Jesus said nothing. He had clearly not broken any commandment. He was perfectly innocent. And then they put Jesus under oath and they said, Okay, now tell us, before God, tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus couldn't be quiet then because that would be like, like saying, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Son of God. And so when they put him under oath with that, he said, that's who I am. 
And they condemned him, not because he had done something wrong, but because of who he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus was innocent. Isaiah 53 emphasizes that as well. Verse 7, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. A lamb, an innocent lamb, is Jesus before his judge. He doesn't even open his mouth. Verse 9, there was no deceit in his mouth. He hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 11, my righteous servant. Jesus was innocent. And yet, according to God's perfect plan, he stood before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate said, even though I find no fault in him, he's guilty, and I'll put him to death. In a sense, that guilty verdict from Pilate was God's verdict. God was declaring, yes, even though my son has not himself done one single thing wrong, never sinned once, yet he's guilty. He is guilty because he bears the guilt of his people. And besides that, on the other hand, Pilate's verdict was a judgment of the world. Because Pilate stood there as a representative of the world power. And there stood the Son of God in front of him. And the question before Pilate was, well, what are you going to do, Pilate, with my son, with, the, with this one who is very God? And Pilate said, put him to death. And that's the judgment of this world. Jesus was innocent, but he bore the guilt of his people. Jesus would also bear the curse of people. That's part of the purpose for God having Jesus tried before a Roman judge. Because if it were in front of the Jews only, he could not be crucified. They could not by a man, but the Romans did. Genesis chapter 2, we all know, the children know that too. God said that when you eat, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. The curse of God will be upon you. And he said to Adam, the curse is on everything because of your sin, Adam. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, in the law of God, God said this, when a man does a sin so great, like murdering, after you have put him to death, hang his body on a tree. And when you hang that body on a tree, he is accursed of God. God put that in His law in the Old Testament with a view to Jesus because Jesus would be hung on wood, on a tree. And He became accursed. That's why the Jews kept saying to Pilate, let Him be crucified. It wasn't enough that Jesus would be put in prison for the rest of His life. It wasn't enough that Pilate would cut off His head and kill Him. He had to be crucified because the Jews knew that would make Jesus accursed of God. Jesus bore the curse, says the catechism. Is, is there any other reason for Jesus' death, anything significant? If he had died a different kind of death, and the catechism says, oh yes, he had to die this death. 
to show that he became accursed. In all of that, then, Jesus was a substitute. A substitute. He lived in perfect obedience all his life. As a baby, a toddler, a seven-year-old running around playing with his brothers, a teenager, and all of his life, he was absolutely perfect. Sinless. Now that's important because his death would be a propitiatory sacrifice. Let's explain that. The death of Jesus Christ was not only a redemption, it was. It was a purchase. That's the point one of the sermon. A, a satisfaction it was, a payment. But the catechism says in question 37 that he also by his death obtained for us the favor of God righteousness, and eternal life. Those three things. The favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Jesus was obedient to the very end of the cross, and through His suffering on the cross, in perfect love, He fulfilled the law. I said that when I read the law this morning. I said, the fulfillment of the law is in one word, love. Jesus did everything, not merely keeping the words of the law, but He did it in love. And even as He hung there on the cross and He bore the wrath of God, He was doing it in love for His Father. He fulfilled the, the law's requirements perfectly because He loved. Therefore, the death of Jesus Christ was the means by which He obtained a righteousness. His obedience could be imputed to us. The Belgian Confession, Article 22, says that explicitly. It speaks of Jesus imputing, and now I'm quoting from the Belgian Confession, Article 22, imputing all His merits and so many holy works which He has done for us and in our stead. His obedience and His holy works are imputed to us. He did them in our stead as our substitute. So, when He died on the cross, He paid for our sins. He took the debt and paid it. He removed our guilt and the curse. But He did something more. What He did becomes an obedience that can become our obedience. So that we are righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. His obedience becomes our obedience. His suffering was a propitiatory sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus was so different from the sacrifices of a, of a wicked idolater. He worships this idol 
And when things are not going so well in his life, he says, well, I must have offended my God. So what can I do to make my God happy with me? Maybe I can put out some nice food here. Maybe I can spend some money. Maybe I can burn some incense here and make my God happy with me again. That's not the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is the satisfaction of the righteous justice of God. Satisfying God's justice perfectly. And then earning favor besides. The Old Testament sacrifices were like that. They were a propitiatory sacrifice. You can tell that because they had to be so careful. Pick out an animal that was spotless, perfect. And then put your head on that animal. When you put your head on that animal, you're transferring your guilt and your family's guilt. You're transferring your guilt to that animal. And then that animal is killed. And his life is given in your place instead of you. And then that animal is burned on the sacrifice. The the fire of that pointing to the terrible wrath of God that you deserve. But the animal is bearing it instead. But there's more. Because that sacrifice was not only a payment. It was a a sacrifice consecrated to God. Consecrated to Him. And the smoke of that offering was well pleasing to God. And the, the priest could take from the coals of that offering and go into the temple and offer incense to God, a sweet savor to God. The sacrifice, yes, it was a payment, but it was bringing about the favor of God. A propitiatory sacrifice it was. All of that pointed to Christ. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, which God accepted, your sins are gone. They've been paid for. Your debt is gone. The curse is gone. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you. And you receive that by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ obtained for us the favor of God and eternal life. He came into this world as a mediator, I said. He did not come into this world merely as an individual. Everything he did as mediator, he did in the place of his people for their sake. So let's be clear about that. That Jesus made a payment by his suffering. He did that as a substitute, not for himself, but for someone else. And now the Tremendously important question is, for whom? And that brings us to the third point. He did this for a specific people. Now, the catechism says, the catechism says that he did this for the sins of all mankind. He sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins 
of all mankind. And when you read that, you think, wow, that'd, that'd be something that Arminius would like to quote. Sins of all mankind. But I want to remind you of something. Arminians do not like to talk about Jesus paying for sin. Arminians would love this answer in the catechism if it said, Jesus died for all mankind. They love to talk about Jesus dying for everyone, but they do not like to talk about Jesus paying for the sins of people. They spin a lot of theories about the death of Jesus, Arminians do. There are those who say, well, he died to make salvation available for anybody who wants it. Or, he died in order to demonstrate the tremendous love that God has, and that should move you to love God. When you see how much he loves you, you should love him. Or, they say, Jesus died, and in that way God was showing the terribleness of His wrath and what you deserve. And when you see that horrible wrath, you should run to Jesus, therefore, so that you can escape the wrath of God. But that Jesus died for sin, that He paid debts, they don't want to talk about that. But the catechism does. For the sins of all mankind. Now we still need, we still need to deal with that. What does that mean? The sins of all mankind. If that meant that he died for the sins of every single individual who ever lived, well then all their sins are gone. He paid the debt. It would be totally unrighteous for God to put anybody in hell because their sins are paid for. Everyone will be in heaven. If Jesus bore the wrath of God against the sins of every single person, they're all, everyone will be in heaven. And that's not the Bible's teaching, that's not the catechism's teaching, so that cannot be means. The Bible indicates, the Bible identifies those for whom Christ offered this propitiatory sacrifice. One of the most one of the clearest places is John chapter 10. You remember John 10 where Jesus is talking about himself being the good shepherd and how he knows his sheep. How he can call his sheep by name and that his sheep are the ones that the Father has eternally given to him. And then he says, and I lay down my life for my sheep. He says specifically to the Pharisees who were there, the wicked Pharisees, you're not my sheep. I know you're not my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. For particular people. Isaiah 53 does the same thing. Our transgressions. Our iniquities. The transgression of my people. God says, he hath borne the iniquities of many, not everyone, 
many. He shall see his seed. He, he knows his people, his seed. Those chosen eternally in him, that's his seed. He shall see his seed. So why does the catechism use the words all mankind then? Well, it's exactly because the scripture points out Jesus came to save his elect race, but that elect race is out of all the nations. He didn't come merely to save Jews. He didn't come merely to save Dutch and German people, white people. He came to save people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, every race. That's why the all mankind, that's why the Bible speaks of the sins of the whole world, not meaning every person, but out of the whole of the human race. These three things make the saving work of Jesus truly a saving work. That it is a satisfaction, a payment. That it is, secondly, a substitutionary death in the place of others. And that it is for specific people makes the death of Jesus Christ to be an effectual salvation. You take any one of those three things out and, and you lose it. That's why I said at the beginning, those, the three points of the sermon are the three things you must include when you explain to someone why did Jesus die? What's the significance of his death? It means that our sins are paid for. He earned for us righteousness and favor and eternal life. There isn't anything that can take that away from you. He's earned it. It's a finished work. That's our salvation. The salvation of Jesus is not a mere possibility that you will be saved. It's a real salvation. Our sins were laid upon Him. That's Isaiah chapter 53. By His stripes we are healed. We are healed. He justifies many. Justifies. And because these sins are paid for, God can legitimately forgive your sins. Because they've been paid for, He can forgive them. We need to see the connection. God determined to forgive us. He determined to forgive us because He loves us. But to do that, as we said earlier, God needed to have His righteousness his satisfied perfectly. And that's what Jesus gave to His Father in His death. A perfect satisfaction. Righteousness. What God gives to us, therefore, is based squarely and only on Jesus' work. Not on yours, not on mine, only on Jesus' work. Salvation is all in Jesus Christ, His atoning suffering, your debt is paid. But consider what kind of debt this is for a moment. It's not like a bank debt. 
with a bank debt, you borrow $1,000 and you make your payments, and when it's all finished, the debt is gone. You don't have to go into the bank and say, will you forgive me? The manager would say, forgive you what? You paid the debt, you paid it, it's gone. I don't have to forgive you anything. Our debt with God is not like that. Our debt with God is a moral debt. We offend God with our sins. We offend Him. So it's not like paying some money to Him. God, therefore, demands that we come and confess our sins. And then He forgives. Then He forgives. He doesn't forgive us because we confess them. He forgives them because Jesus paid for them. But He wants us to recognize. Do you see how horrible your sins are? Do you see what you have done? How you have offended your God and your Father in heaven? Do you see that? He wants us to see it and to confess it. And again, you're not going to heaven because you confess your sins. Because there are millions and millions of sins that you and I will never confess and we're still going to heaven. So we're not going to heaven because we confess our sins, but God nonetheless wants us to see how horrible our sins are, to acknowledge our guilt and confess them. And then He forgives them because they've been paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the tremendous value of the suffering of our our Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy astounding gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Thou hast given us everything in Him. We who are so unworthy, we can only thank and praise Thee. And then, Lord, out of thankfulness, not only confess our sins, but hate them and turn from them and seek to live in thankfulness, thankful obedience. Grant us that as we look to the cross every single day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.